Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning and welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. I'm here with another interview with an amazing Canadian poet. And today it's Catherine Lantier from Toronto. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Oh, I'm so excited. I had to move from the outside to the inside, though, because the neighbors all chose to mow their lawns at the same time. So I'm going to have to forgo the sunshine for now and sit in my dining room and read Kateri's bio. So Kateri Lante is the author of Reporting from Night from Iguana 2011 and Siren, Vehicule Press 2017, which was long listed for the 2018 Pat Lowther Award. She won the 2013 Walrus Poetry Prize and has been shortlisted for ARC's Poem of the Year. Yay! Her poems have appeared widely in journals in Canada, the US, and England. Her creative nonfiction essay appears in Against Death, Anvil Press 2019, Montaigne Medal finalist. Is that for the particular essay? No, that is for the uh, collection, the anthology oh, itself. That's nice. I, I've never even heard of that that medal. No, it, it's based in the U.S. Oh. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yes, um, Ellie Gardner uh, was the editor. And, right. Uh, yes. It was quite exciting when the when the collection um, was. Uh, um, yeah. Fine. Not a word, yeah. Terrific. Okay, her work has been included in five anthologies, including Best Canadian Poetry 2014, has been translated to Chinese by Anna Yin for Mirrors and Windows East West Poems, Guernica Editions 2021. I cut out your few other jobs here in your bio. I thought I'll just stick with the one you're doing now. She is currently teaching poetry introduction at the School of Continuing Studies? Well, yes, for the School of Continuing oh, Studies. For the school. school. Okay. The school of- uh, you, um, the classes take place in different buildings on the campus of the University of Toronto. Uh-oh. So uh, there isn't like one grand edifice that is the school. <laughs> right, me. right. There's not the school. There's many schools. I like that, though. That's the way it should be when you're teaching poetry. There should be many yeah. schools. Yeah, there's a sort of, uh, you know, it's like a floating world, ethereal kind of uh, aspect to that. But um, yes, yeah, so we are uh, at the the class meets at the Oise building on Bloor Street this particular class oh yes how big is your class um it's small i uh, last summer i taught uh creative writing for um university of toronto mississauga utm as we call it i and i had a class of almost 60 students and wow that is way too many it was enormous um uh great because there's such such a great range of writing that the students did and you know but i it was uh, a whole other experience and then this is this is very small so um but it in it that has um uh great advantages really because we can focus on yes uh, everyone's work and everyone gets a chance again a chance to make to comment on the work that we're that i present to them and so yes. on so uh intimate uh very different um so i'm enjoying the contrast actually between those i two bet groups. I can't imagine trying to teach poetry to 60 people at once. I mean, you just end up lecturing. I mean, how do you it, it focus? It was a lecture, and then they had, um, um, they had tutorials in which right. they, they sort of broke down into smaller groups. Um, but it was intense. It was uh, two classes a week uh, last summer, two, two hours, uh, two-hour classes at a time. Um, and I'll, also, I have to say um, uh, that 
it was uh, also a challenge because um, only a few weeks before my father died. Oh, no. So I had to, he died, and then I had to start teaching this course. And uh, so it, so it's all hard. a bit of a blur to me in a way. But um, I think that uh, it's kind of, it's interesting that um, the poem that you chose of mine to, to for us to discuss, because uh, that was... Um, that is a poem that has to do in part with his, my father's father, my grandfather. Mm. Um, and also the very last time I saw my father was um, when I handed him a copy of The Walrus with my poem oh, really? and he read it. So um, oh. I can say a little bit more about that maybe in a minute. But Absolutely. Um, I just want to finish saying how you and I know each other or how we met. We met at a reading in Toronto, did we not? Yes, I yeah. think um, I think it was a reading on Collard uh, Dundas Street. Um, was it hot sauced words? I didn't actually, see see at a reading on Dundas Street, not the press club, maybe, but uh, serious. But uh, mm -hmm. anyway, but I'm not sure if we actually met that evening or at an, or at some know. subsequent reading. Yes, I know. I, I really doing these interviews. I've really gotten a shock sometimes about people remembering certain things, and I didn't remember. Sometimes it's vice versa. But you know, so I, I'm thinking, oh, I met this person when I did this workshop, or I was at this reading. They go, no, actually, I met you when you were a teenager. At you know, I was like, no, I must have had like amnesia from that period of time because like <laughs> I don't want to remember those years. But they remember me, so it's interesting. So, but we have been chatting virtually for some years. Uh, some yeah. of our favorite topics have been ageism and cliques in Canadian poetry, of which there are many, along with yeah. other very important topics. And I reviewed both Kettery's solo collection, Siren, and the anthology Against Death. So, a few connections. So, I would love you to read your incredible poem that came out in The Walrus. And that okay. uh, references your father, grandfather. All right. It, it just references my grandfather. Yes. But, but your um, father read it before he died. I, I'll read it first and then, uh, then I will maybe add, we can add some comments. So, uh, Fiat Lux. If cinema is time plus light, I've got a sequel to Marclay's The Clock. It begins with my granddad's Fiat Lux delivered in a fond, mock heroic tone, followed by a montage of the cheap and dear switches I've handled in a long life cycle. The pull chains, the panels of sticky plastic, the button on a hotel's fancy brass bouillotte. The snap lights out in my childhood bedroom where roses on satin turned ghost pale by street lamp. The lights beyond my reach, oh, how I would reverse this, in the theater where a stranger grabbed my thigh when the lights dimmed before trop belle pour toi. I leapt up and left. How does it end? The night lights for nursing, the bedtime story light. And this, the bakery boss at my first job who led me down the cellar stairs to the cold, dark storeroom, then leaned close, growling, this way, you won't forget placed his hand over mine and set our hands on the switch. Hmm. What a jam-packed, textured, layered piece. So what would you like to say about it, first of all, on a, on a personal level? 
Uh, well, um, a couple of things. Uh, so the title is, and my little uh, micro anecdote there about my grandfather is um, is drawn from life. He uh, actually did used to walk into a room and flip the light on if it was sort of late afternoon and we were reading and it was getting a bit dummy. We'd flip the light on. He would just say "Fiat Lux." Um, <laughs> the thing about him was uh, this is all. This happened in. Uh, this would happen in. Montreal, in his house in Montreal, West, um, and uh, he was actually, uh, it's not, you know, Fiat Lux, maybe we should say, so Fiat Lux means let there be light in mm-hmm. Latin, um, and it's actually in the book of Genesis, yeah. <laughs> the point at which God creates <laughs> the stars, and so on, um, but my, that grandfather, Lottier, was actually, um, he had been a very good student, and uh, was very adept in Latin, um, he once wrote my father a letter entirely in Latin when mm. my father was in grad school in Toronto. Um, anyway, he was, um, but it was a little bit um, poignant his life in a way because um, although he was a very good student and good at very many different things, he uh, he had to leave uh, McGill in mm. the um, when the depression began and start working to help support his family. So um, this is. So his formal education was curtailed, but he was a a phenomenal autodidact and uh, wonderful. um, uh, He and my grandmother both worked as librarians for a time. Um, He was he ran a parish library at uh, Loyola, and my grandmother um, was a children's librarian Mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal West School. So um, their house was book paradise. And uh, I I feel I I actually dedicated Siren, uh, my 2017 collection to jointly to my grandfather, mm. my uncle Philip Lantier, and my father Jim Lantier, um, because they, this literary side of the family, <laughs> truly they they are the ones who um, started uh, all of that, I guess. Anyway, um, so um, so this this that line and the title. Um, they, 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 they do come from <laughs> from an, uh, an anecdote from my life, and there are other anecdotes drawn from my life in the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I also did manage to see um, a little bit of Christian Marclay's "The Clock." So, are, did you see the clock? I did uh, not, but you know, this leads me right into my first question. So maybe you can elaborate <laughs> on this through that. So there are a few allusions or references in this poem to sources a reader may not be familiar with, such as Marclay's. The Clock, a 2010 looping film on timepieces, or the 1989 film featuring Gérard Depardieu, Trop Belle Pour Toi, or even the French word, now I know this is wrong, for hot water bottle, bouillotte, or does it mean something else here in terms of switches? Okay, so that specifically, bouillotte there, is referring to a particular kind of lamp, um, yes. table lamp. And um, the the name, I think, I, I didn't actually uh, refresh my memory on this one, but I think that the name comes from um, the kind of, in fact, the kind of table maybe that where a uh, certain um, game, card game, whatever it was played. So a bouillette lamp is usually um, made of metal, like brass um, or mm. bronze, the fa- very fanciest ones. And uh, I, it, so it looks like... Um, I guess maybe originally it would have had can't they would have had been made for candles, but uh, but you do see them very <laughs> many places. Uh, uh, they're made to this day, um, right. but anyway, that's yeah. so it's a fancy brass bouillot. Ah, yeah. huh. I wonder how it connects to the hot water bottle, the bouillot. Like I wonder. Yeah. Well, I don't. <laughs> I forgot that. I'll have to explore this in another poem. <laughs> yeah. 
So, how, so the, the, the question that connects to that is how much does it matter to you in your own poems or when you're reading poetry yourself that a piece be instantly accessible and what do we gain when it isn't? Uh, okay. Well, I mean, it's funny, uh, on reflection, I guess this poem does have a few, ch- might pose a few challenges for readers, which I didn't really think too much about at the time. I, in my books, I will have, I have thus far included little notes at the back, um, explaining, right. uh, maybe some of the references that might seem literary to some people, but yes. also um, uh, acknowledging echoes that I might have, mm-hmm. <laughs> ways in which I might be echoing or ringing changes on familiar lines from, let's say, the canon. Um, yes. I do that so that I'm acknowledging my sources in a way, but also to sort of help the readers along. But I think uh, I, I, this poem doesn't have footnotes, so... Um, but, but that's okay. I mean, that's what I, th- that's what I felt when I was reading. I thought I, there's two levels here. I could absolutely read it, not understand those references, those allusions, and it wouldn't actually detract that much from my enjoyment of the poem. And then I can also add to my, you know, knowledge base and I can look this up. I mean, this is a weird resistance that a lot of people will have to looking anything up or just resting without that knowledge. And that's okay. Right. You well, know. for most of us, or many of us, we have, you know, Google's just a touch away on our phones or whatever. It's easy so peasy. It's never been easier to look something up totally. than it is right now. You know, it might take you a while to get to the accurate answer, but um, but it is, uh, I, I think maybe, I hadn't thought of it in these terms, but I think maybe writers can uh, feel free for us to, to uh, not to worry so much exactly. about whether uh, the reader is going to take it in. Then again, I am glad to hear, very glad to hear that it did work for you just on its own, because that that is also my aim. I am not trying to completely baffle Mm. readers. Um, I'm not trying to plunge everyone into um, impenetrable mystery. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, from time to time, yes, sure. But but I do want there to be some kind of coherence to it. So um, uh, so I, I... I also think very. It, you, you don't really know what someone's going to bring to a poem, and, no. and it's surprising sometimes. Uh, uh, so if you hold back because you think maybe someone won't get a reference, um, never hold you, back. No, you never know. You're sending it out into the world, and it's it, it's really um, quite. Uh, I mean, it can often be quite delightful to hear what other people, the the associations that other people bring to something. It enriches your own experience of what you might have written. So Absolutely. um, And I mean, presuming people can't understand or relate to or connect to or get the resonances of a poem because there's illusions in there that they don't instantly know is rather absurd, I think, you know, and, and, you know, kind of reminds me of, you know, a lot of people when they're doing a poetry reading, if they read something, they're going to recite something that they think is going to be difficult in whatever sense. And they'll apologize beforehand. I'm sorry, this is going to be hard to understand, or this is going to be dark. This might be depressing. It's like, well, why are you condescending to the audience? You don't know what they know and what they've been through. You That's know? right. And, the, and then maybe as an extension of this, I mean, I didn't translate the French either. So I, I do encourage my students that if they, you know, if they want to include words from other languages in a poem to feel free to do that. And um, then it will simply be a question for them as the author of whether they do they want to include a translation at the bottom or a note, or do they just not want to do that? I don't yeah. think anyone's obliged to do that at all. Um, no. Uh, 
I think it's maybe perhaps different in a um, when the poem is floating independently of a book. Um, uh, but uh, it, with the book, you do have that option of, of including notes at the end, or, or however you might want sure. to address it. But um, but anyway, I actually feel it's. I mean, it's, I think it's even a somewhat political point, but I do think that it is very important for the poet to. Um, include the vocabulary, whatever vocabulary they wish from um, different languages and moving through time. They could have archaic words if it's going to fit what they're writing. Um, And to, um, yes, not to to, uh, deprive themselves of the richness of possibilities there. Yeah, to to be free, essentially, to do what they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you, but I think, did I answer your question or whether? <laughs> I think um, so. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, definitely you did because, you know, you don't think it's, I mean, you want your poems to be accessible on a certain level, but at the same time, it doesn't matter so much if everybody understands everything because that's the freedom of the artist to include whatever it is in their piece they want to, or is they're driven to. And then it's up to the reader, the listener to say, okay, how much of this do I need to know? Or can I just let it be rhythm and sound and texture and all that? Well, I think in this particular poem, let's say, I uh, could contrast it to some of the poems in Siren. With this one, I feel like there is a, a, a clear flow that someone could follow along. Uh, a narrative flow, also, yeah. Um, I, it, it kind of, I wrote it in the um, early stages of the lockdown <laughs> in, the, in our pandemic. Um, so it was a... I found that time to be um, particularly odd. Well, I mean, questions of time and what is time and so on. Uh, I think many people were sort of struggling with and perhaps oh, still are at, sure. right at that point because so much shut down. And then there was there were big questions about what was going to happen. Um, and so and in. Uh, when you can't do many different activities, I mean, I think often your thoughts might go drift back to your past or what, have, what has happened mm-hmm. in my life today? <laughs> yes, the <laughs> reckoning. <laughs> um, so this was a sort of a, a bit of a memory dive in a way. And um, you're right, there are uh, references that stretch back to as far as the, uh, the film, Trop Belle Pour that anecdote of in the theater I mean that that did actually happen and then I've kind of collapsed things I have um I I also have memories of uh nursing my children um I have three children all teenagers now but um the nightlight for nursing the bedtime story like the endless (laughs) bedtime stories and then so this is a poem that starts off I think um I I started off with things that kind of pleased me in a way Mm. so that they were they were pleasant memories. I, I remember dashing out to see a little bit of the clock, um, the Marclay uh, video uh, piece, um, which was being screened at um, the Power Plant Gallery in Toronto, and uh, mm. now almost a, a decade ago, I think. And and I know I had very little, this funny, I had very little time to go and see the clock. <laughs> and I was only, I just remember being sprung free by my husband for a little, little interval, and managed to go in and stand and just really be mesmerized by it because um if people uh don't know what we're talking about um uh Kristen Markley the artist um created this video piece of video art which is just kind of clips from <laughs> films over time many different films and I think I, I think also television um mm-hmm. uh in which scenes in which there is a clock and so but he and his team who worked with him found these uh, segments and then 
and he edited them all together. So mm. it, but the whole thing runs 24 hours and wow. there are little patterns that are detect that you can detect at different times of day to certain. Um, and then, so it makes you reflect on it. I think it's brilliant and it does make you reflect on different, um, uh, cinema tropes and, and cliches but yes. also um you think about drama you think about um the art of filmmaking um so this was a very offhand way to to enter the poem because i really just don't i don't come back to mark clay at all i just abandon <laughs> at the beginning of the poem but um and i think it's maybe uh cinema is time plus light is a little bit um mm. cheeky on my part because Clearly, cinema is more than time plus light, but I wanted to just crunch it down into something that was sort of aphoristic. Yes. And also set up my, well, I've got a sequel to Mark, to Mark Lay's The Clock, so um, so let's just talk about light now. Yes. And people who know what the title means would be kind of cued already for yeah, that. They would be course. sort of set up by that. Um, uh, so I started off with sort of more or less affectionate reminiscences, Um but then I, sort of midway, um, well, I mean, you could ask me questions too. Well, this, this, this is going to connect to my second question, which is listing. Yeah. Listing is part of this poem. So why is this strategy so evocative and what does it add to our connection to the world beyond the artwork? So, yeah. you, ha you know, you have the listing of the different lights and you have the listing of, yeah. you know, uh, let me scroll up here. You've got the pull chains and the button and the, the different types of lights. So, so what are you doing here with the lights? Why this enumeration? Well, I think it's also um, partly what, uh, as I was saying, like about point in the pandemic and also maybe um, uh, this is something that happens to me often when I'm in uh, trying to fall asleep. <laughs> but, you know, my mind is drifting. I am making a different associations. And then I'm, I start connecting. I start thinking of different instances. And then this is when I usually have to turn on the light. Yes. <laughs> um, and in fact, I have a pull chain light. So, and, and try to scribble it, scribble this down. Um, so, um, it's that associative way of thinking, um, that, uh, actually connects very much to how I start, might start writing something, but it also had to do with memory. So, um, I think, as I was sort of saying it, it's that feeling of like um, taking stock or looking back over your life when something big happens in history, such as the pandemic that we are still in, really, and 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 then thinking, oh well, so what have I, you know, what have I lived through? Because in the yes. in the onward rush of life. Um, you know, you, you can lose track of how often, you know, I was thinking, well, I've done this mundane thing just so many times. Um, it's Monday, but it's also, uh, somewhat miraculous. Yes. So is it, is it a way of like valuing it when we, you know, we do all these things and we don't value them a lot. We just do them. And then, so you, you highlight them and you bring them out in this list to say, I honor yep. This progression, in a sense, yeah. of acts, and, and then I wanted to kind of, I, I, and then I, my thoughts were drifting into fears. So um, I did actually have a lovely satin bedspread um, that uh, I, I was pale pink. Uh, my sister and I, we had these matching bedspreads, little twin bedspreads, and then at some point when it got really shabby, I remember my mother died of blue. <laughs> <laughs> No, but, and so it became this very sort of faded blue. But um, so that that is, that is also actually uh, drawn from life. But then, uh, but then I think I'm suggesting sort of childhood uh, fears there too um, of the 
Um, I'm sorry, the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I like the ambient sounds. Yeah. So. <laughs> Landline is ringing and no one's going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of I'm course. The only one on this floor at the moment. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, the, uh, the, um, so I'm, I sort of plant a little bit of, of um, maybe a little uh, bit of childhood fear there, uh, Ghost Pale by Street Lamp. Yes. Um, and I guess I'm really setting it up because then the next thing that the poem, next moment in the poem, if you will, is um, the theater scene. Now, this also happened, <laughs> um, but it's, I think it's the kind of thing uh, that many people could uh, relate, relate to. to. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of it very much when Me Too first kind of um, emerged. And I, this was a particularly distress. In a way, I've kind of um, sassing back at my own memory because at the time I found it very disturbing. And um, uh, and I say I left up and left. How does it? How does it end? This is this is me sort of talking back to my past, but also. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a feminist line too, I think, because uh, I didn't get to see the rest of that film. I yeah, curses on him, curses. <laughs> Not to go into the sort of the trauma too much, but um, but this did happen, and and uh, I, I we went to try to find the manager of the theater, who was um, some you know person who was you know, in their early 20s or something, completely ineffectual, that didn't know what to do. And and then as we were standing around, you know, and I was feeling indignant, this um, man who had done this left um, left the theater where we had, that we'd been in, we were standing in the lobby, and she ran out the side door. And I actually went so far as to make um, a police, or like a report about this. Wow. Um, I'm, which, I'm impressed. And the and so there's a whole other thing I could write here because this was just at the time. Uh, this is a very long time ago. So this was just at the time when um, the, what we were calling the Scarborough rapist mm. what, was um, uh, committing his crimes. And uh, so I do not know who it was who did this to me, um, but I did actually go and look at images that, that the police showed me of. Um, of potential uh, perpetrators, and uh, one of the images was one of the images that was used in the campaign to try to find this person. Oh, so I'm, I'm yeah. not even saying their name because I don't yes. <laughs> want to say their name in the middle of this podcast. But uh, in, an infamous criminal. Um, so that I have put that right there in the middle of the poem. But it's you know this is part of my experience, and then uh, so I guess it's a way of. Um, you know, poetry can be a way of settling scores and reclaiming things. <laughs> so absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so um, anyway, you were right. There is a lot in this short poem. <laughs> There's a lot in here. Catherine, anyway. let's stop right there. And I'm going to send you another Zoom link so we can elaborate on the third question and then go onwards. Okay. All right. All right. I'll be right back. back with Catherine Lantier and we are still talking about her amazing poem Fiat Lux and I'd like to ask one more question about it and you can go in any of these directions because it's kind of a jam-packed question as well 
Uh, so there's a thread of gendered challenges that course through the piece from the grandfather to the stranger to the bakery boss. And you were just kind of touching on this prior to our break. What is this poem saying about relationship, dominance, oppression, and the voice or the vision? So you were talking a little bit about Me Too and, you know, what, what impact that this movement has had on our consciousness of all we've been through as women in terms of our levels of suppression, oppression, and so forth. Uh, well, an excellent question, and I think that um, the conclusion of the poem is really uh, where I finally kind of addressed um, and uh, the the first memory I one of the earlier memories I, I had of being you know what we would now describe as being harassed or um, in some way menaced also um, and it was this, uh, I had the, this brief summer job I, when I was, um, I think actually, uh, I, I didn't say summer job there, but in fact, that's all it was. I was, mm. so I was 16 and it was a summer job I had in a little delicatessen on a of Avenue West in my parents, in the, in the neighborhood. Um, but uh, I was, so I was so startled. I remember thinking, um, I think I'd been a very fortunate child on the whole. I'd really um, had uh not experienced very much um, by way of transgression of this kind. And um, so I just, and, and, but also perhaps even because of that too, you know, I was sort of uh, uh, polite. Yes. <laughs> um, not, I didn't have that uh, a quick adrenaline surge or defensive kind of mechanism, um, which I, which I, I think I now have, it's, it's, I can summon that up much more quickly now. Um, partly because I'm older, I think, and I've had any number of experiences, but also because I have children. And yes. so um, I was able to, to kind of, uh, I, I don't know, em, em, uh, embrace that more <laughs> uh, demonstrative, emphatic side of myself um, after mm -hmm. having after having children and having to uh, protect them, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I... Mm -hmm. uh, but at that age, I can remember how stunned I was that that how this person, how he demonstrated for me where the light switch was and what did this mean? And um, so I just left it there. I mean, there 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 was there were more things I could have talked about uh, uh, in that particular when it comes to that particular anecdote. So I. I know I was um, playing on a bit of suspense even mm. there with mm. with this ending. Um, and in some ways, I guess maybe I did bring it back to Mark Lay because it's like a short, a short cut. It's a short, mm -hmm. just a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, it is like, like the editing of the clock. Um, but again, if you haven't seen the clock, I wanted to, the poem to work just on its own yes. and not um, uh, presuppose uh, familiarity with, with the other artwork. Um, right. So, uh, yes, I mean, I have enormous fondness for, for my grandfather, and I did worry a little bit because I was putting him in this poem with some disturbing things, some... Some, some nasty fellows. <laughs> some disturbing things. So yeah. it's... But in that way that um, when you're reflecting back on life, on your life, you know, you, it is it is that. It is a sort of... Um, uh, uh, the roller coaster or the assemblage of all these positive and negative things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, so I think in the end, it's a poem. So I survived uh, uh, some of the things that happened in this poem, and here I am having yes. written the poem. The poem is a statement of poems are statements of survival and <laughs> I love that continuing on and sending a voice out into the world. So yes. um, I, at least that is how one of the ways I view them. 
Yes, you're the one who gets to take back that power and recount these hands in these various places and gestures and motions. And so yeah. then it's like you're creating your own machine of like reconfiguring these gestures and motions. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by the piece and I did learn a lot looking up those references. I mean, I know Gerard Depardieu, but I had not particularly seen that film of his. So, and now I'm, now I'm intrigued about, you know, the clock. So. Oh, very good. Yeah. There you go. Not only is it a good poem orally speaking and structurally and in terms of the narration, but also teaches the readers. And what, what the hell is wrong with that? You know? Nothing. Okay, so I want to get a little bit more personal outside of the poem and sure. find out where, how did you start as a poet and now leaping, so you don't have to, you know, recount your entire trajectory. Where are you today? Uh, okay, so um, when, uh, the way I started um, was uh, in childhood, writing poems um, uh, kind of compulsively, uh, and then uh, oddly enough, actually won a uh, couple of prizes in a northern ontario poetry contest i w was uh living we were living in Sudbury at the time so when i was still in uh, public school um uh, but then uh, a teacher when we moved to kingston ontario a very supportive teacher of mine sent some of my poems to um uh what was a really long-lived and wonderful canadian literary journal called quarry oh and i missed were, that like, <laughs> so when i was 13 i had two poems in published in quarry and this led to some uh, uh, lovely things. Um, I was, um, I met different Kingston based poets, uh, among them Bronwyn Wallace and, uh, and, and Steve Heidi. Later, she, she actually published, accepted some of the poems that I wrote when I, after we moved to Toronto, she accepted them for Corey. So it was this sort of lovely connection. I, I, I would do readings with them and they would, they would make these jokes like not only is she under the drinking age, she's under the driving age. <laughs> That's so I had, I had wonderful encouragement very early on. Um, uh, and then I knew that I wanted to study English. So I uh, went to U of T, did two degrees in English. Um, but I, and, uh, and I was writing and publishing in um, journals and I was on the editorial board of um, uh, desk camp for a while and so on. But then in my thirties, I just, it just, sort of faded off for me and uh it's odd because I started so young and right. um so I won't I can't even get into all the different reasons why it faded away but for a while um I, I turned all my writing uh, efforts were in trying to make a living for, well first as an editor but then uh as a writer on um decor and design so oh. if you if you googled me you would still see some of my um bylines on decor decorating and design and architecture articles. i'm always fascinated by how poets how writers how artists make a living i think it's always really interesting you know right. i mean it's become more of a homogenous path these days but there's still all these bits and piecing that we tend to yeah. do or weird jobs we had earlier on or what have you so yes i mean i say that that phase of things which lasted for about a decade um was good in some ways and 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 I don't and in other ways I don't recommend it you know mm. so I I didn't even rec I don't recommend it to my earlier self <laughs> for what it did to me in a way um because I ideally there would be more of a balance and so I I did um have in a way some success doing that I even wrote for a television series on 
uh, on decor and so on. Um, but then I had children. So um, I, I've done some things in kind of the an unconventional order in a way. <laughs> and this is all part of it, I, I feel. But anyway, um, I, I think I have an, an essay beyond the one that is in Against Death, but I think yeah. I have another essay in me on and how strangely I have done these things because I'm, a, I'm I'm an odd duck in this in this way. But anyway, so I started having children. <laughs> uh, my first child was born when I just turned um, forty. So or just before I turned forty, and I thought um, to everyone's surprise, my husband and I had a child, and then we thought, well, and I think ever, most people we knew thought we would just stop there. Like, right. they, they did have a child, but later than they had one. And then we had another, and then we had another. So um, now the thing about, um, you know, the line, the pram in the hall, you know, this this idea that children make it hard to write or or are or, um, obstacles in some way yeah. to, especially for women to write. Um, and it's it wouldn't be accurate to say that they were that it was not a challenge because it was mm-hmm. um but i i found that having children brought me back to writing poetry just just in, yeah. a, in essence. and this was because um the, listening to the kids <laughs> leaving sort of a, a kind of toronto quasi-corporate kind of line of work that i was in and then spending all this time with small children and focusing, listening to the the ways that they were acquiring language and colliding words together and so on. Um, it just, all the, po- the poetry, <laughs> poetry tags, if you will, like all the poetry that was sort of memorized into my head, it just kind of bubbled up again. Um, also, I was very <laughs> sleep deprived. And oh, yeah. uh, so the reason that the first book is called Reporting from Night is because I, that was the only time I had to write, really, but I would finally the kids would finally be asleep or one, two, then three. And I would go up and um, crank up the very old computer that we had yeah. and start working on these drafts. Um, so after, once that had happened um, and I had that first book out in 2011, um, it was a bit of a, it kind of precipitated uh, a lot more in, in yeah. terms of poems. So um, then Siren is quite, quite different I think from the from the first book the first book was mostly quite short poems um uh imagistic and um although there's one there were one or two poems I think that kind of lead into Siren in a way um the poem that I wrote called Small Hours and so on where um it's there are these couplets um but uh, I fell under different influences um in my reading and I also started to go to lots of um to, to as many readings as I could, yes. <laughs> given that I have the three kids. So I started to participate more in um, in the in Toronto poetry circles. And this was, in a way, quite a challenge because I was, none of these young people knew me. <laughs> yes. Some who were older knew me. Heather Casby remembers meeting me years before, but... Um, most to most people, I think it was a bit of an enigma. I just sort of showed up, and I was very interested in buying copies and reading. And, and you I were fully formed everyone. already, in a sense, like, because you had you had poems. Yeah, you'd had poems accepted earlier, way earlier. So you still had yeah. this foundation, even though you'd had this long break. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and I could see that that was a challenge for some people um, more than others. And and you and I have talked about this, but it was. Often, it seemed to be more of a challenge for the male 
<laughs> poet. But of course. Um, and editors, some of whom I encountered than it, than it was. Uh, and this is um, uh, a sweeping statement. So there are some notable exceptions. Um, uh, As always. People who have been very, very helpful to me, um, my, my editors um, and publishers, and um, of course, particularly Carmen Starnino, um, wonderful editor who worked with me on Siren. So um, I, I uh, would, I just sort of leap to say that, but um, there are people who have been, um, there are male poets. Um, Definitely. But then, but if I have to think about, if I could, and I'm not going to name anyone, of course, but if I think about a few, uh, shall we say maybe gatekeepers, <laughs> um, and I reflect on who they are and uh, and so on. I, you know, I, I find it very interesting anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. It certainly is. We're, we're going to chat a little bit about that with the next question, I am sure. So where are you today in this end-ish, pandemic-ish moment? Uh, what are you working on? Do you want to chat about that? Um, sure. Well, um, I am writing more poems that um, might seem to bear a kind of connection to the Theatlix poem, for example. So um, Siren had many... Um, poems that were loosely in a Hazal form and um, and then a few that are a little bit more um, that follow the lines of the traditional form a little bit more closely. Um, so I have, I mean, I've, I, I have very diverse, my, my reading habits are kind of all over the place, if you will, like, but because I'm interested in a wide range of work from quite formalist work. So, for example, I'm quite enjoying um, Alexandra Oliver's new book, Hail the Invisible Watchman. I reviewed um, it. Which, so which Alexandra is... Oliver and I go way back. We met as teenagers at the Burnaby uh, Writers Group. Yeah. And in fact, it's so funny because one of the earliest readings I did was a reading called uh, We're Not Greasy Kids, uh, Poets <laughs> Under 25. <laughs> And Alexandra and I were, you know, the main readers. So, yeah, it's quite funny. We're, we're both having a sort of a retrospective yes. <laughs> moment. Um, and then, um, but also, um, I read uh, poets from outside of, of the, the country as well. So, um, I have Mona Arshi's Dear Big Gods right here um, oh. that I recently got a copy of. I um, I have uh, Shikant Threddy's Underworld Lit, which is... Which is um, so far, just dazzling me. It's so uh, it's a witty and um, rich. It's amazing. Um, and then uh, an, a, an English poet I quite like, and I've been teaching some of his work in uh, the courses I've taught recently is Sean Borrowdale. Um, oh. His B Journal um, is one that I I've really been enjoying. Um, unconventional um in a way it's a it's a book of um he actually did keep bees and he did keep a journal and so he wrote sort of a poem almost it, all the poems are just most of them are just um dated like you know 16th july agitated yeah. you open the hive under a great parasol to keep the hive rain free shaking of workers into air anyway so it's part he he does believe in sort of writing uh, i was going to say writing on the fly <laughs> bees but documenting and he also is a multimedia artist so he works a little bit in film and audio and so on so um contemporary um uh british poet uh, mm. so so i you know i i try to keep um do you know tim do you know tim bowling's book on the b oh um, no i have not read that it's one it's actually but, really uh, good thank yeah. you for reminding yeah. me because yeah. I, 
I think we could do an entire, I could do a whole B class, class or a course on you know, B related. Very poems. much so. Very um, much so. Uh, anyway, that, uh, so, so in terms of now, the other thing I have been doing is um, working on some short stories. Um, when I was teaching creative writing last summer, I, I uh, realized how much I enjoyed teaching uh, fiction, mm. the fiction sections of the class as well. Um, so I, and I thought, huh, you know, I haven't actually, <laughs> I, re- I really need to get some work out that is uh, in other, other genres maybe. Mm. So um at least this is this is my wish. To, so I have some short stories uh, that I are just about ready, maybe to send out soon. Um, uh, nice. But I, but poetry is kind of my default setting. So I, I'm hoping it's to, the only I'm way so, to be. It's like the core ahead. of everything, right? No yeah. matter what other genres you write, poetry is that core. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how I've always felt about it, anyway. So. You know, at first I used to think I'm being unfaithful to poetry if I write in other genres. And then I thought, no, poetry is at the core of everything. It's at the center. So, well, and I also think that um, in teaching creative writing, I think it's great for the uh, the aspiring, the aspiring fiction writers to read poetry and have to study it a little. Like, I actually think this is very good, very healthy for them, very good for them. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, you know, as if I'm making them eat uh, granola or something. (laughs) I think that it's um uh, that uh, and and I mean I I've more and more as time goes on and also as more and more hybrid works come out too. I'm just very interested in all the intersections of the different um genres and how at the moment there's kind of I think greater acceptance of like breaking down these barriers and combining things um uh elements and and fiction poets can learn from fiction writers they can learn uh how to um deftly incorporate dialogue and how to um you know build a sort of narrative suspense and so on um they, they can lift these techniques yes. fiction and probably would and, and would benefit from it and and in the same way uh fiction writers um would uh could benefit from the now not all poets some poets are per- verbose but they could benefit from the more trying to be a bit more lapidary maybe with what they're yes. saying I mean, yeah. a lot of fiction there seems to be a lot seems to be a lot of filler so you know we yeah. pare it down art condensing things um and uh uh, and also, uh, you know, uh, paying a little bit more attention to the nuances of, of words. And the fiction right, that I tend to like tends to be <laughs> to reflect that. And mm-hmm. whether we're talking about, I don't know, Angela Carter or someone mm-hmm. like that, um, Helena Yemi, uh, the writers who, who's, whose work I, I return to, they do tend to be people who um, have a very well-attuned ear that way. Mm-hmm. Like Jane Urquhart or... Even Margaret Drabble. Um, yes, you know. Margaret Drabble, very, uh, very um, entertaining. Or, or um, our A.S. Byatt possession. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Which is quite a tour de force uh, and includes a lot of poetry, too. It so, does. Um, I, I mean, I think I actually gave that as an example to students of, like, you know, there's something to be said for being a fiction writer who could then write the poetry that their character, their yes. characters are supposed to have written. It's not. It's not it. easy, you know. Well, you know why, not, why not try? Why not try to stretch uh, in that way? Um, and uh, yes, so um, that's what I'm up to right now. Um, did you want to? I, do, do you have a question about um, 
what about Canadian poetry, what, what it needs or something. I no, think my, fi- my final question, which is actually two <laughs> questions, is tell me what you would change about the Canadian poetry scene and what you still love about this often strange world. Uh, well, um, it's been interesting, too, with the pandemic, which, I, you know, I, 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 it really did affect uh, my feeling about feelings about many different things. Mm. And uh, also, I've, the last two couple of years, I've been preoccupied with also just trying to keep um, uh, uh, the small family <laughs> safe and healthy and, and, and so on. So, um, so that, that has taken up a big <laughs> chunk of time in which I might've been pondering some of these other questions. <laughs> you, I, I, one thing I, I do think that is that, um, and we've, this was sort of emerging as, as something to consider before the pandemic and is certainly sort of quite clear now, I think to many more people is that the need to make, um, to have poetry available on different platforms, shall yes. we say. So, so going to readings is wonderful being, going to launches, being there in person, there is nothing like that, that sort of bonding and the, um, just the, the sort of being in the presence of, of uh, other writers. So um, and I miss that. And I have found it um, nourishing, shall we say, but, um, but also there are many people who, who have obstacles when it comes to trying to do that in that yes. way. I mean, I was doing it very without almost unthinkingly. And so I think that poetry does need to expand beyond the, um, well, the book is great. Um, journals and the online world is great. Uh, and we need to use the online world, uh, a little more effectively, um, uh, so that we can reach more people. Mm. And I also do think that just out there in the sort of physical world, um, that poetry should be more present in our spaces, um, in public buildings and it, if we think of it, people think of it more as art, like as public art. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is that treated that way in different places in Toronto. There are places where you can go and find it. Yes. And um, but I, uh, but there should be more. There should be more, more, more integrated, more integrated into you know society well, into our buildings. Stepping on a sidewalk and there's a line. I mean, we actually have this in Toronto. We have yes. different programs in which same in Edmonton. Um, yeah. There, uh, also, for for example, for the Toronto Public Library, when George Eliot Clark was the uh, poet laureate for Toronto, he started the poetry map, which is such a great idea. And so, uh, I actually one of the poems um, in. Re- uh, reporting from night is on the poetry map, but mm. if you have a poem that is uh, makes a reference or sort of takes place in a certain part of the city of Toronto, then it's a candidate for this poetry yeah. map, and uh, you can go to the library's website and and find you know kind of little that's like Google mapping it or something. There's a little cluster. That's of, a great of, idea. Uh, possible poems, and there's like like a link and a link to the book and, and the library, I think also. So um, great initiatives like that, poetry yeah. on transit, poetry, um, uh, all of these things are great. I also think though um, that I, uh, when I went to New York um, about uh, almost six years ago, I, I think, and read in New York with um, some Canadian poets at um, KGB mm. bar and also at Bryant Park, um, we, uh, we went to Poets House in New York and I thought, how absolutely wonderful it was. Now, I understand poor poets has, they had a huge, huge flood. So oh, they were terrible. in the midst of kind of trying to restore themselves. And, and it's very sad to see um, what happened there. But it was, when I went, it was so glorious. 
And I, the good news about all that um, is just that the books weren't, um, I, I don't think they have suffered many losses with the books. So there was oh, that's a phenomenal relief. library there. It's great. Mm. But I thought how wonderful this is that there is a, um, a kind of bricks and mortar um, kind of place that uh, is for poetry. And mm. so um, now well, this is a geographically, you know, an enormous country. So um, I think Stephen Collis was talking about um trying to have a uh, something like that in Vancouver. There is a poetry um, house in Vancouver, but it's very it's very spoken word focused. Right. So, Which is fine too. But um but I also think that um there's something to be said for little satellite poets houses across the country. Yes. Um I, I this would be my this is like my my dream vision that that we could find a benefactor for this. To have place in you know so just coast to coast to coast and so on where it is an actual place so i mean i guess it would make sense if this is just a part of a library and part of the library system libraries already sort of are this in a way um a little section of the library is always like a miniature <laughs> but but i so there was something about it being the a kind of poetry yes. world there that was just so deeply appealing and that you could have readings and bring school groups in and um because we tend to have readings in bars and um occasionally maybe in a library but uh you know temporary spaces spaces that are often not very accessible and so um i mean you know harborfront in toronto it would the authors festival is there but these things sort of set up and then they're then they're they're gone so there's a kind of they become sort of ephemeral um and it would be so great there's a room for example uh, down at harborfront that was you know like a poet's room and we could have copies of the books like i know that there are copies of there's a copy of siren in the library of congress (laughs) so you know but I'm, i'm thinking like wouldn't it be great if if all the new poetry books every year uh, there was a copy that were published in, in Canada? Mm. There was a copy. There would be a copy of them available. Yes. <laughs> yes. And dream it was, place that I have in mind. <laughs> and it was a resource for <coughs> poets who are touring and yes. had an up to date yes. kind of bank of what venues, you know, what, what magazines, what, you know, all these different options that we have for appearances, because it's very hard to keep up to date on all these things and who's running what now and so forth. So that's right. They come and go and we could track this. I mean, this could, can be tracked, uh, online, of course. Um, it can be tracked in a sort of a virtual way. Um, but I, do you know what I mean? How appealing that would be? I mean, because I really, when I was in there and there was a quite a well-known American poet, she came in, I recognized her actually. <laughs> she came in and just very quietly went and sat down at one of the desks and started work, pulled out her notebook and she was looking out at the river. And I thought, this is wonderful. such a dream. Yeah, this is, I was so envious and, you know, of, of the, of that, being able to do that. And so, so anyway, that, that, uh, is um kind of the pie in the sky idea how how great that would be but it would have to not just be in you know toronto where everything seems to get a bit but you know um yes it's centralized and also what we have in edmonton is the only poetry festival in canada so if there was actual poetry festivals in every province 
events instead yeah. of just writers' festivals, which are wonderful theoretically, not always, mm-hmm. but they're a whole different ball game than just having a poetry festival. Well, years ago, Greg Gatenby used to run a poetry yeah. festival per se at Harvard Friend. Like, yes. He actually he did, and um, uh, it was it was great, and he would bring in uh, poets and have. Um, uh, from other countries and have them read and yeah, um, I remember. translator would read and so on. Uh, so th- this is part of the, the author's festival. Um, uh, but you always do get that feeling that the poets are somewhat. <laughs> They're the bottom right? shelf. Like we're always the bottom shelf. Like the why? The nonfiction writers. And so, so um, I mean, the, that, that is something that he he did um, very deliberately, and, it, and I uh, really appreciated it mm-hmm. years ago. So um, yes, it's a, it's a, it can be a bit of a it seems like a, a perpetual struggle, but <laughs> but I somehow I feel like um, uh, it would be I, anyway. This is this is an ideal, and it would be so great to have it in different provinces and you know. Yes areas of the country and just and not just in southern Ontario but one in northern Ontario you know that's I could think of ways that um to to expand it and make it um and it would I mean you know it could be modest it's not that it has to be some sort of that's right um, lavish thing but I but I think it would have whole tremendous meaning for a lot of people if we could do it somehow so that anyway, it would. This, this, something like this is you know would be my And there's something about that beautiful struggle of like knowing we never arrive at a place where, oh, you know, everything we need as a poet is somehow given to us. We're always struggling towards it. I mean, it it does make you think of things like, um, I mean, I I often reflect on the Poetry Foundation in the U.S., which uh, has an enormous endowment. And I... I really appreciate how the ease of use, if you will, of that website that they have, uh, the archive of poems, the, um, yeah, you know, it, it is amazing what can be done yeah. uh, with if you get sort of that level of funding, I guess. Um, and somehow also that is just in its way very American. <laughs> that it is, yes. Fortune attached to this, um, uh, which has, enables them to do various things. Um, so, you know, we are, uh, you know, in Canada, it's, it's it's not really like that, although I guess the, the Griffin Prize is somewhat um, suggests that sort of thing. But, um, but again, it would be so... Uh, Yes, we we don't have to have a a, um, a flashy a flashy place. We do it the Canadian way. <laughs> we do it the Canadian way. We should just yeah. have those little satellites in all these different right. places. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm just now I'm just try, thinking. Okay, so I guess that Al Purdy's uh, cabin is that way. But I mean, that's just sort of one person at a time yeah. or one family at a time going to stay there. And uh, you know, I I mean, I don't drive actually. I don't drive <laughs> either. I don't drive, so. And so, so for me, I always am hoping for somewhere that someone could get to uh, by um, transit or yes. walking or bicycle. Or Definitely. Um, so, uh, so, so in other words, in in a town or city, um, but uh, but like a place that wasn't just you know, oh well, see, because at this point now, even in my return to um, to poetry world. There are reading series um, that I read in or that I attended, and those places are, are they're gone now. Yeah, <laughs> they were, you know, over the last um, decade, over a little over a decade, yes. um, and I walk past, you know, the, where they they were yep. and think, oh, look at that flashy restaurant that it is now. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
so there so and i mean it's it's not uh it's not altogether bad um and it's good that things change and come around again. Like I think Art Bar is now back at Clinton's. I haven't managed to go there yet, but um, I want to know if they have funding again because that was the exciting yeah. part. Yeah. <laughs> I loved funding. coming out to the Art Bar. I knew I had an audience. I knew there was funding. It was just a miraculous time. Mm. So, <laughs> so some, some, sometimes you know, um, it is really wonderful to have opportunities in which to read and present where where you you know that your audience is not feeling kind of uncomfortable yes <laughs> and, and it, you know they're not necessarily in some dark drafty moldy space you know they um the, the, i felt um you know all the cliche romance of that when i was really young um, yes but now that i see it from a more of a perspective of inclusion i think that i it it is just you know can we not have um you know, uh, uh, a more tranquil or a more um, ex- open, accepting kind of <laughs> setting for these things. And and why should we think that we have to? You know, I, I I think it's the romantic cliche, this idea that the poets have to be starving in the garret, and and that's going to lead to great work. You know, I mean, I I don't I don't let us not starve in garrets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, um. Yeah, so, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on that topic, I guess, but... Um, Final words, uh, Kateri. Final words. Yes. Yes. Anything you would like to add to oh. tell our listeners? Um, well, I'd like to thank you because this was a wonderful chance to talk, and um, I, I, th- I can see that I've been teaching a lot lately because I'm asking all kinds of questions. <laughs> so, you know, what do you think? Like, I'm sorry. I, I, I kind of ran away with some of the questions there. Um, That's but, fine. But... Um, I so this is, your podcast is an example of the sort of thing that we need more of actually so I I do want to throw that out to you that I uh, really appreciate it and I've been very much enjoying listening to earlier episodes and oh, terrific um it, it, in itself is a you're you're amassing a great archive with them and uh, and you know it's important to do because <laughs> because people we don't are not always around you no. know or you think that someone's going to be around and exactly. I know we both um, quite an, admired and you you really knew him quite well Stephen Hayden and I no. feel that it, you know lost very very keenly so um so even though I you know sometimes it's a bit of us to yes. line people up and get them <laughs> or yes. and so on. I, I just really effort. thank you for doing this because um uh, because it it uh it is important. It is important. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, Harry. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Don't forget to support her on Patreon and stay fierce, word musicians.